There's a new uh, phenomenon going on technologically uh, called deep fakes. Anybody heard of deep fakes? Raise your hand. Everybody under 40, 30. Okay, good, good. All right. Well, it's a good time to bring everyone else into the know of uh, a little bit of an amazing but mostly a terrifying reality that our culture faces right now that we coin uh, deep fakes. That is that artificial intelligence is now so smart and so accurate that people with the right software can take uh, audio or even create fictitious videos of you. They can make you say whatever they want you to say. And they can have a person on the screen and they can transpose you over them and they can make you say whatever they want you to say. They can take audio and do the same thing with. As cool as it is, I mean, you can actually speak right now and if you have the right artificial intelligence, you can record me and it'll actually give you different languages of me speaking this exact message. So there's a lot of cool things that artificial intelligence can do, but there's a real dangerous side of artificial intelligence in the form of deep faking. As a matter of fact, I read an article recently uh, that cited that there was uh, a company in Europe uh, who a member of their team received a phone call. And the phone call uh, pretended to be the CEO of their energy company. And this person thought that the CEO was on the other line, and so he actually wired over 200,000 euros into a Hungarian bank account because the person on the other end of the line that sounded like the CEO, acted like the CEO, and was my boss, I thought, and I had to do what my boss tells me to do, and so I sent 200,000 euros of our company's money to a bank account, and now investigation has revealed that the insurers of that company believe that that was an elaborate deep fake. And so we recognize that deep fakes, even in our culture, most of them, although there's a lot of good things that artificial intelligence can do, uh, when it comes to deep fake, most of the deep fakes are used to sham people out of money and things, to shame uh, people. Imagine all the kind of inappropriate and terrible things you can do with making something seem like it's somebody that you're mad at or angry at or want to get back at. Uh, people use it for fraudulent schemes, like you just said, and even to extort money and property away from people. And so we understand that in our culture, uh, deep fakes are a real problem. But I would like to at least submit to you that I think there's a problem uh, when it comes to deep fakes in the church that far uh, extend beyond this idea of fake videos and fake audio of people. Uh, and in our church today, I think we have a problem with deep fakes. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us that in Matthew 7. If you haven't turned there, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Because Jesus says there's some deep fakes here. There's some deep fakes that aren't necessarily always trying to just deceive you, although that is partly what uh, deep fakes can do even in a church. But there are a lot of people who are into deep faking in the church who are actually deceiving themselves. And that's a problem as we think about having assurance of salvation, even as what Jesus is teaching us here, the concern that we ought to have of saying things that aren't true. You see, in our culture, in our churches today, this kind of deep faking uh, is 
people who uh, we believe are saved just because they say they are saved. And we'll get into a lot of the, uh, the, what that entails. Even as we look in the text, we recognize that there are people who are calling Jesus Lord, expecting to re- receive entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have no part of my kingdom. And so that should be for you and I, not hearing from the words of your pastor, but hearing this from the words of Jesus himself to ask ourselves, man, I got to make sure that I'm not a deep fake. I got to make sure that I'm not one who claims something to be true while it being false. Because unfortunately, as we look at this text, the Bible tells us there's going to be great anguish for some people when they meet Jesus. And Jesus looks at them right in the face, makes eye contact with them and says, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. So this morning, it leaves us with the task of understanding how you and I can actually have confidence that we're not going to hear those words when we stand before Christ. I mean, that's really the work of this text is twofold. One, on the one hand, uh, for those who are actually in Christ, who are saved, uh, will have confidence that we're going to stand before Christ and hear the other words that the Bible records. That is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now come receive the inheritance that's been uh, stored up for you uh, since, uh, since I began the work of salvation. Or you're going to be the other people who think you're going to hear those words, and you're going to hear the words depart from me into the abyss, into a place, into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so for us, we want to undergo the work this morning of understanding how we could actually have confidence that we will never hear those words from Jesus. And it's really going to come to this fundamental point that is going to pop up on the screen for you right now, To at least as we think about our own testimonies. How can we have confidence in, our, in the testimony that we have that we're saying something that actually is true? So as we do that, up on the screen, you can read it there or there on your note sheet, that we must recognize and understand that Spirit-empowered spirit obedience to God, not mere professions nor fervent religious activity, has always been the mark of an authentic relationship with Christ. And that's something that we are going to come to understand well in the next three verses, that it is the Spirit-empowered obedience to God's commands that is our mark of an authentic, genuine, intimate relationship with Christ. It's not just about what we say. It's not about all of the activities and the check marks, the check boxes that we mark about going to church, reading the Bible, even extending to things that we're going to see in the text like, you know, casting out demons and prophesying in the name of Christ and doing many mighty works. I mean, those things do not give entrance into the kingdom according to the very words of Christ. And so, how do we have confidence in this day? And we have to be able to have confidence, you, you understand. I mean, the whole book of 1 John, it literally, the whole theme of it is, I have written these things to you that you may believe that you have eternal life. Did you hear the theme verse of 1 John? 1 John's all about you having assurance of your salvation. We want to make sure that you come to this church so that there is a way to be assured of your salvation because we understand there are cults and there are people who do not have an orthodox understanding of the gospel and Christianity, who say that you cannot know. As a matter of fact, uh, the Catholic Church's catechism will tell you that because there is a part of salvation that does require works to be infused with the grace of righteousness in Christ, that means that you, because you're an imperfect person, you can never be completely sure if you're going to be right in the presence of God at the day of judgment because there is a part of your works that have to be infused with the grace of Christ for you to have any idea that you would be able to enter the kingdom of God. And so, therefore, you really can't know until you know when you're, when you're there and he actually says those things. And we're going to say, well, that's, we don't believe that's true. We believe that Scripture is going to give us real clear understanding of the kind of assurance that you and I can have and those who are in Christ should have. 
But we also want to make sure that those who do have false professions of faith can also have that clarified and the, do, let the Holy Spirit do the work of convicting and working in the hearts of us who are examining ourselves to make sure uh, and to see texts like this and to ask ourselves, uh, what does Christ have to say to me about this this morning? And so as we do that, I want us to go ahead and look there at verse 21 in Matthew chapter 7. There it says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we get started, look at the first two words. We need to understand uh, something uh, about those two words that are going to help us work through the rest of this text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So we have to make at least a quantitative uh, in, in our mind, or at least a categorical place in our mind to say there are going to be people who confess that Jesus is Lord who aren't going to be saved. So just create that category in your mind. Why? Because it's here in the text. Not everyone who says necessarily, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So without putting a number on it, I create a category in my mind to say, there are going to be people, there have been people, there will be people, there are people right now that do say that Jesus is Lord that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can we do that? Just categorically place it there because that's what the text tells me to do. Now, because it says not everyone, it doesn't mean not no one, okay? Not no one, not anyone. And so for us, we can say there are people who do say that Jesus is Lord who will enter the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, part of professing genuine faith in Christ is that there would be a confession of Christ as Lord. I mean, that is part of genuine conversion, that I would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Uh, But it isn't that confession in and of itself that qualifies me for admittance into the kingdom of of God. Now, there may be a couple of reasons for that, as we, particularly as we get into what it means to say that Jesus is Lord and to reiterate it twice, Lord, Lord. Uh, we understand at least two things, because we have to keep three audiences in mind when we're reading the Gospel of Matthew. The first audience you've got to keep in mind uh, is the audience that Jesus is talking to. And so you have the people there on the mount, the, discipleship, or the disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees, those who are listening to Jesus. The second a group that you have to keep in mind are the readers of the Gospel of Matthew. Have you thought about that? Oftentimes when we read the Gospel of Matthew, we think primarily of the crowd that were there with Jesus. But Matthew, the evangelist, was writing the Gospel of Matthew to a particular group of people, to Christians from a Jewish background. And so he was writing this in a way to uh, speak to them about the Messiah. There's a second one. The third one uh, is obviously you and I, that uh, the Word of God has been delivered once and, all, once and for all to the saints. And it's our job, according to the book of Jude, to make sure we can defend that truth and defend that deposit that's been entrusted to us, as Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, that we have the message once and all for all delivered to the saints. And so as we keep those three groups in mind, we can then begin to categorically place how people think about Jesus as Lord. For instance, when we're talking about the crowds there in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we understand the word Lord has, is used in different ways in the New Testament, and particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, for instance, uh, there is, uh, in your Old Testament, uh, when we talk about Yahweh, uh, depending on what translation you have, if you have the ESV, it will be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you, do you know that? Uh, some of your translations will actually have Yahweh, but a lot of our translations, they go ahead and take the personal name for God, Yahweh, and put it in all caps, L-O-R-D. 
D. And so for us, we see, okay, well, obviously, when uh, we have translated the Hebrew into the Greek, into the English, we have taken the Old Testament Yahweh to mean Lord or God or the ruler of the universe, which is fine. It's a good thing. We just need to keep that in mind as we think about some of the New Testament uses of the word Lord. Because in the New Testament, the word Lord can mean master, uh, which you often hear this in some of the parables when uh, they say, well, the master of the house you know, did blank. You see that multiple times throughout the Gospels. And so, curios, the word Lord, can just mean the master of an estate or a house. Uh, you also can hear uh, people say Lord in a respective manner towards people of uh, reverence or towards people of honor, uh, much like the way you and I would say sir to a man or ma'am to a woman. They would say Lord out of a sign of respect. Now, thirdly, and we think about particularly Matthew's readers, he would, they would have understood it this way, and we ought to understand it this way, because as we look at the text, when Jesus is saying, Lord, Lord, we ought to respect him, we ought to see him as somebody to revere, we ought to see him as the master. Uh, but when we look at Lord, Lord, we understand that although maybe the audience in the first century wouldn't have initially understood Lord, Lord, uh, in the sense of Jesus being the God of the universe, although he will uh, he will prove that as we get through these three verses. They may have initially looked at Jesus as just somebody that we ought to respect, and we'll call him sir or lord. But here's the problem with remaining in that category once you read through these three verses. If you keep reading, it says this. On that day, in verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these good things, prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do many mighty works? And then, listen to this in verse 23. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is what that verse does. It eradicates any category of calling Jesus Lord that does not encapsulate his sovereign rule over the universe that includes giving you admittance into the kingdom of heaven. So there's an eschatological truth behind the term Lord, Lord, that we must understand. And we can argue the first, you know, maybe the people in the mountain didn't understand that. But by the time Jesus finished those three verses, people have to ask, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? It's the same question you and I have to ask even in our day today, because there's a lot of ways you can call Jesus Lord that does not mean that you have received him as your Lord and Savior, that does not mean that you see him as Scripture sees him. There's a lot of ways you can call Jesus Lord, and we see this because even in the text it says there are people who say Jesus is Lord, Lord, but they don't mean it in a salvific sense. They don't mean it in a biblical, triune, God nature of salvation through Christ alone. And we have to ask, okay, then what do we do with that? Well, you have to ask, and it begs this question, what do we mean when we call Jesus Lord? Because there's people who are going to stand before Jesus who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and it ain't going to cut it. And so we have to ask questions like this. Is he Lord of all except for Lord of me? I mean, we have that in the church these days, right? I mean, you have your kids grow up. Maybe you've grown up in church. You're like, yeah, I believe all the things. I mean, how many times have you heard that in the baptistry? I believed everything the Bible says about Jesus. I believe everything the Bible says about God. I believe what my pastor, when he preaches about Jesus being the Lord of the earth, I believed it. I just didn't believe it for me. And we're going to say, then you can know all the right things about the Lordship of Christ, and you can stand there before Christ on the day of judgment, and you will not receive entrance into the kingdom of God, because you may believe all the right things, but you receive it not, him as your Lord. 
And so we have to recognize that. And I, I, we can keep going, right? Do I call him Lord but deny his commands? I mean, that's another one. I mean, Jesus says, like, no one who says they would follow me would not also follow my commands. If you love me, you will obey me. Right? If I am the Lord of your life, I am the ruler of your life. I'm in control, and I have taken rulership over your life. You submit yourself under me, and I am the Lord of your life. I'm the master of your life. I'm not just a great teacher, which is another one, right? I mean, people these days, I mean, people including Gandhi, you recognize, will say, Jesus is a great teacher, a great man of moral capacity, probably the greatest person that ever lived. And I, and I would say to that, baloney. If he's not God, he was a nutcase. If he was not God, he professed things that are complete lies, and he's a sham, and he's a deceiver, and he is the false teachers that we read about above who tell me that there's a way for me to get to heaven, but it's only through him. If it ain't true, he's a liar, and he's the worst teacher that ever lived. So don't tell me that he's a good moral teacher if you will not call him Lord, because the only way that he is any true of a teacher is if what he says is true, and if what he says is true, then that means what I mean when I say Lord is he's the Lord of the universe, the creator. He has uphold the universe by the word of his power, and that is the Lord that I submit my life to. And there is no other way to call Jesus Lord but to call him the Lord of the universe to whom he is the only one that I can go to to receive salvation and eternal life. And anything else, any other way that I would call Jesus Lord is not indicative of biblical gospel. I mean, even in our day, I mean, think about this. You can believe that Jesus is God and it doesn't save you. I mean, the demons believed. God, you know, James says that. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. We can say accurate things about God and not be saved. I mean, I was just listening to a podcast the other day of these apostate teachers, which you always want to call an apostate teacher back, right? Because even that podcast reminded me in such a wonderful way that, you know, you really can't truly call someone an apostate until they die because maybe their apostasy isn't eternal. And I love that idea that we want to, we want to, we want to see people redeemed. We want to see people called to repentance and, and brought back. Uh, but this reality, even for those people who, and who were apostate and who did die, they said a lot of things in their lifetimes that were true about God. They said things that, would, for you and I would say, I could have never said a more orthodox thing than the way that you just said it. Saying orthodox, thing, orthodox things about God doesn't make you saved. And all we want to do as we look at the first part of this text is just say, I get it. Words cannot be the ultimate marker of whether or not my faith is genuine. And we just have to admit that because the text says that. We cannot see our words as the ultimate marker. My words cannot be the definitive marker of the genuineness of my faith. Now, with that being said, you do understand also that professions, confessions out of the mouth, they're biblical they're necessary. They're a part of genuine conversion. They are. But we must make sure this, it's point number one, we need to make sure that we have a biblical view of professions of faith. We need to have a biblical view of professions of faith. Listen, I know that you have your own thoughts about professions of faith, and I know I have my own thoughts about professions of faith, but we have to have a biblical view of professions of faith. And it can't just be something you were told at one point in your life. It can't just be something that your denomination believes or that your family believes. It needs to be what is the Bible's view of a profession of faith. 
And, and, and if you're one of those people who say, well, no, it, it doesn't matter. If somebody says they're saved, that's proof of their salvation because th- if they confess and profess Jesus as Lord, then that's the proof of their salvation because no one would profess that if they weren't saved. Then I'm, we're going to look at and we're going to say here, no, verse 21 says that people will, and not only that, people make erroneous confessions all the time. Do you know that? Like People often make erroneous confessions. They say things they don't mean all the time. I mean, look at, look at your spouse and say, I remember you told me something that you didn't mean one time. Don't do that. You'll end up in counseling with me next week. <laughs> but people do this all the time. We have to make sure that we don't equate a profession of faith with unquestioned assurance. Do you see that? Unquestioned assurance. When people profess faith, I want to make sure that I, that I ride this line like a sharp edge of saying, a profession of faith is necessary for salvation, Right? If I can't confess that Jesus is Lord, then there is, there is no evidence of regeneration of the heart. But I also am not going to give unquestioned assurance to somebody just because they said the right thing. I can't. And so it keeps me at this place where I'm not going to say, well, for the rest of your life, never, ever, 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 ever question it. Never have anybody question it. If anyone question it, you need to call them, you know, a, a messenger of Satan. And on the other hand, you know, we can't say, well, until you do 17 good fruits, I will not. I'm not going to accept your profession of faith. Like both of those are wrong. But we have to have a biblical view. Because people, like I said, are going to make erroneous confessions. I mean, even when you think about people who confess to crimes, you know, people who are confessing to really heinous crimes, and there are some people who would say, likewise, they would say things like this. Well, if they confess to it, then that means they're guilty. Well, if they're willing to confess to it, then there's proof of their guilt. I mean, if that would be what you would say, that assumption is false. Did you know the Innocent Project? It's a nonprofit legal group. Of all the convicted people who have been exonerated by DNA testing, that is, of all the people who are sitting in prison today or at some point who have been exonerated, that means they're out of prison because they were actually innocent. Of all the people who were in prison who are now out of prison because of DNA testing proved their innocence, almost 30% of them confessed the crimes they didn't commit. 30%, one in three, confessed to a crime. They professed things that were untrue, even to the detriment of their own lives. Why do they do it? That is not in the purview of the sermon. The fact that they did it is what this sermon is all about. And all I'm saying is there's a much bigger problem than sitting in jail for the rest of your life because you committed to something that wasn't true. There's an eternal consequence to admitting something about yourself that is just felonious. And I've never used that word in my life. It just came to me right then. Felonious, okay? Right? I just want us to understand it's just not true. We can't just say just because we say something that it makes it true. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne sums up verse 21 this way. The message here in the Sermon on the Mount is that mere confession is useless unless accompanied by action. One can make a profession, but without a changed life, such an affirmation is without merit. And we're going to talk about obedience. We're going to talk about that kind of faith that leads to a transformation of one's life later. But we at least have to, again, as we're building this case, assert that to be true. Yeah, you're right. We have to understand that this is the message of Jesus throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, that if I'm making professions that are not accompanied with my actions, they're useless and without merit. We see the same content echoed in Titus 1, verse 16. You can jot that down. Titus 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. I mean, these people are saying the right things about God. They're saying the right things about Jesus, but yet their lives reject the lordship of Christ and the authority of God. And you say, well, that, that can happen. People can get saved and completely not live after Christ for the rest of their life, and that's okay because they're saved. And we're going to say that is, a, that is a false view of conversion because conversion has always been about the redemption of the person. Christ is not going to save a person that he does not also conform into his image. Are we going to have times in our life, maybe short seasons in our life, when we fall into sin? Absolutely. No one's going to say, no one's going to say you wouldn't. But what we're going to say is the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, who is equally as omnipotent as the Father and the Son, is more omnipotent than you and I. And so I cannot outpower the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit's work in my life to conform me into the image of Christ. And so therefore... I look at this text and I can say that if we're going to profess to know God but deny him by our works, it's evidence of a false conversion. I mean, Titus 1.16 ends this way. These people, they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. Well, if the New Testament tells me over and over again that to be a new creation means I'm fit for good works, but this tells me I'm unfit for good works, then I'm going to have to draw the necessary conclusion that if I'm not fit for good works, that means I'm not fit for the kingdom of God who has purposed me in Christ for good works. And so therefore, I can look at a text like this and use it as evidence of saying, for those who would profess to say something that is true but yet deny them by their life would be a false convert. Maybe, maybe you're given an objection. Maybe you say, well, pastor, what about Romans 10? Romans 10, I know Romans 10, somewhere 9 through 10, it says something about that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you're going to be saved. You remember that text? What are you going to do with that, Pastor? Right, it says right there, if you confess it, then you're saved. Well, I would say let's open up to Romans 10, 9 through 10. Let's look at the text. I don't want you to believe anything that I say that we cannot find in the text. And so I want to take you to the text because I want your confidence to be in the Word of God. Romans 10, 9 through 10. It says there, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, I think the potential objection that someone may have in this text, actually this text would serve to prove the point that we're making here, is that we're not just talking about, uh, we're not just talking about saying things that that are true. We're, we're worried about, just like the Sermon on the Mount is, the transformation of the heart. And remember, although in the Greek, the heart, even in this word, is the cardia, we're not talking about the heart as a muscle. We're talking about the inner, the inner being, the soul, the immaterial soul that animates this body. We are, as we submitting to the Lordship of Christ for salvation, we're confessing that with our mouth, which is, I think, again, like I said earlier, is biblical, necessary, and a part of genuine conversion, but it is not that which is the sole evidence and mechanism of salvation, you see it right here. And believe, that Greek word pastuo, that I'm trusting in my soul, that I entrust my soul to Christ, to God who raised Christ from the dead, and then I will be saved. And there's, there's explanation of that. Well, what does it mean to pastuo, the pastuo Christ? What does it mean to believe in my heart about Christ? 
Well, it definitely means more than what you may hear about asking Jesus into your heart. Well, what do you mean by that? It means that God has come to redeem the whole person, and at first he comes to redeem the soul. Then he conforms the soul to combat the passions of the flesh, and then when I die, my immaterial soul separates from my body, and then I go to Christ, and when Christ comes back, he resurrects the first uh, first, he resurrects those who are dead, and then those who are in Christ, he raises up with him. That is all the Christian ones, the non-Christian dead. They stay dead for a little longer, but that's a whole other sermon. Okay? Then he takes you, and then he reunites that sinful outer shell that has died and wasted away in the grave, and then he reunites it with that regenerate, glorified soul, and then he glorifies the body and the soul, and that is when the whole person, the whole person finds its culmination of regeneration and glorification in Christ. And all we're going to say here, as we look at this, we're talking about the fact that Christ came to regenerate the soul, to give the soul life from death. And so when we talk about, I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I'm entrusting myself to Christ who died on my behalf. He absorbed my sins that should have been mine on the cross, and he nailed them to the cross, absorbing those on my behalf. And so therefore, I turn from my sin, and I place my trust in Christ. And that's what it means to trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why? Because he didn't stay on the cross, and he didn't stay in the tomb. He was resurrected as proof of his, the authenticity of his message to bring death to an end. And bring life. If he's resurrected, Paul even says in other places, that we ourselves will have a resurrection like his. And so for us, it means to trust in Christ. We're saying that we ourselves are going to have a resurrection like Christ. That we are going to be brought to life just like Christ was brought to life. We will not stay in the grave. We will not remain dead. We will not receive the just penalty for our sins, which is eternal death. We are going to have that which we did not deserve through Christ, which is eternal life with Christ. So for when I stand before the, when I stand before, uh, the throne, I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to call him Lord because it is the confession of my heart. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on in here. But yet those who do not trust in Christ, but yet would say so with their mouth, would stand before Christ and call him Lord, Lord. And yet Christ would then say, depart from me, you workers of evil. Do you see that? I mean, that's the gospel. And we can all say things that are true, but the one to whom salvation belongs is the one who entrusts themselves to Christ as the Savior of their life. And that is only inevitably going to draw out a life of faithfulness in that person empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, here's something as we apply things to our life. I'm not going to trust in a confession, right? I'm not going to trust in the profession of my faith. Even me, when I was saved at 15 years old, you know, I don't look back and say, well, why was I saved? Well, because I got up and I put my feet on the bed at 4 a.m. in the morning and I uh, recognized that I was a sinner and I did all those things. And I'm not going to say, I trust the fact that I said all these right things about Jesus, so therefore I'm saved. What a confession is, if it is a salvific confession, is the recognition that I am entrusting my soul to the Savior of the universe whose blood covered my sin, and I trust him, and I turn from my life, live for myself, and I turn to Christ. And I don't trust in the confession I made at 15. I trust in the Christ that I met at 15. And I trust in his person and his work to save me from my sin, not the words that I said. Because I will not go to heaven and say, Lord, Lord, I said all the right things about you. Let me in. I would say, Lord, Lord, thank you for the grace and mercy that proceeded from the Father. That you applied to the cross and that, Christ, and that the Holy Spirit sealed me for, for this very day. Thank you for that grace 
and mercy. Nothing about me. All about the cross of Christ. Here's at this juncture in the sermon, I think it'd be worth at least noting this. I don't want to cause a genuine Christian to doubt their salvation. Now, I want to cause every person, including the Christian, to examine themselves. I think that's biblical. It's biblical because the Bible says it. You need to examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith and to see that you pass the test. And of course, unless you figure out that you don't pass the test, is what Paul says. So I want everyone to be able to examine their faith, but I don't want to partner up with uh, the accuser of the brethren, whose name is Satan, who is always accusing us before the Father in heaven. Even today, the accuser of the brethren is there in the presence of the Father accusing you and I and lying. He's the father of lies. He's been lying since the beginning, as Scripture teaches us. And even now, he's blaspheming and he's saying lies, even in the presence of the Father, about you and me. And that is going to be part of his destruction as God casts him out into the lake of fire. Uh, and that part of his uh, judgment that we see in Scripture is going to be in, uh, in the measure of his lying and his deception and his scheming against the people of God. And so we know that his penalty is just and is forthcoming. But I, what I don't want to do here in this message is to cause genuine Christians to doubt their salvation. I'm not here for that. I want to give you assurance. And I pray that as we exposit text very clearly that you would say, yeah. No, that's right. No, I like that. That gives me confidence. But on the other hand, here's also what I don't want to do. Equally, I do not want to give assurance to false converts. I do not want to be someone up here who gives false assurance to somebody who is a false convert. I want that person, if that's you, I want it to be a little uncomfortable. I want you to be wiggling in your seat. Because what I would rather do is give the news here and not make you receive the news when you're face-to-face with Christ. And so because of that, I don't ever, I don't want our church to be the kind of church, and I don't want to be the kind of pastor who gives unequivocal assurance to false converts. And that is, you, you well, there actually is people here on both sides of this, and we've got to be careful. We can't be the vigilantes, like we talked about last week, who are just looking at all the people that they got in an argument with, and all the people that they don't like, and say, well, you're just a false convert. Why? Because I don't like you. Okay, that's not a good enough, that's not a good reason. All right, that's not a good reason, all right? Uh, but secondly, we also have these people here to say, well, who am I? You know, and we always say, who am I? Like, who am I to say that somebody isn't saved? And we're going to say, listen, it's a good thing that you're not entrusting your own wisdom and your own ideas about salvation to help people understand whether or not they have genuine faith. You're not entrusting it to yourself. You're entrusting yourself to the Word of God to help guide people to a place where they would understand whether or not that their conversion was genuine or false. You see that. So this idea that we're going to say, well, who am I to say? Well, we can't be that because really what that is, it's a very nice cultural way to say, I don't love them enough to help them. I don't care enough and want to do the hard work enough veiled in niceties and pleasantries to say, well, who am I, so I'm not going to do it. So my default would be, you know, you know, you know. And then we give them about a subjective rationale. Do you feel saved? I mean, do, do you think you're saved? I mean, okay, well, then that's enough. Let's, let's just move on. And we're going to say that's not biblical either. We can't throw up our hands and just say we're not going to deal with it because it just seems too difficult. Instead, what we're going to say, let's just have a biblical view of professions of faith. Whatever the Bible says, we're just going to submit ourselves to that, and then we're going to help our people walk in assurance or help others walk in initial faith and trust in Christ for their salvation. Let's do both. But if we're going to do both, we're going to have to have a biblical view of professions of faith. 
think about professions of faith, part of a biblical view of professions of faith is found in the rest of verse 21. So I want to point you over there to the rest of verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we see that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is reserved only, exclusively, particularly, to the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that echoes really a lot of the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Uh, Those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, the Beatitudes, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount tells you there's this Uh, There's this particular and exclusive means to entrance into the kingdom, and it comes from the righteousness of Christ that once applied to the believer, the Holy Spirit is indwelt, and that person then is going to be living in the will of the Father, and they'll be doing the will of the Father. And it is necessary to have that view of Scripture because, as you're going to notice, even in the Sermon on the Mount, that doing the will of the Father is central to the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot read the Sermon on the Mount and remove submitting to the will of the Father and doing the will of the Father. You can't remove that firm, central theme from the Sermon on the Mount. To believe that there could be entrance into God's kingdom without obedience to God's will would render the Sermon on the Mount useless. For for you to read the Sermon on the Mount and yet reject the fact that obedience to the will of God is unnecessary for entrance into the kingdom, you would render all of the Sermon on the Mount useless, you'd be able to rip out, go ahead and rip out chapters 5 through 7 of the Sermon on the Mount and say that we don't need this. Jesus' words don't apply to us if we do not understand the nature of obedience to the will of God as it relates to our salvation. So we have to say, well, well, I don't know what all that means, which is fine, but it does necessitate that you're willing to learn and understand what that would mean according to Scripture. Obedience plays a large role in God's economy of salvation. We we recognize that too, that he's not going to save us without making us obedient. And that's something I alluded to earlier, that that God the Father is not going to save you through the Son and seal you with the Spirit and yet not conform you into the image of his Son through the power of the Spirit. It It doesn't work that way. God, as a loving Father, isn't going to purchase you out of a life of sin, but yet keep you in the activities of sin because that's not a loving father. That's not the kind of father that we see explained to us in the text of Scripture. We have a father who snatches us out of the fire, puts us on the narrow road, and empowers us to walk that narrow way. And so therefore, we must understand that obedience has a large economic role in God's plan for salvation. We need to do this, point number two, sum it up this way. You need to recognize that saving faith produces genuine obedience. We need to recognize that saving faith produces genuine obedience. You always got to keep them in the right order, right? Cults are the ones who put these out of order. Cults are the ones who say, you need to believe the right things, you you need to understand the right things, and then you need to earn salvation. You need to obey so that you will receive salvation, right? That's the wrong order. That's, that's your Jehovah's Witness and your Mormons. And uh, even like we, we talk about, even in the, the Catholic Church and, uh, and your Christian Science Church with Ellen G. White. And, you know, you keep going. I mean, your cults are fundamental, uh, have a fundamental distortion of the place of works in salvation, But because of that, I'm afraid in the 21st century, we all recognize that cults have taken works 
and completely distorted them. And so we have become a church who doesn't want to talk about good works because we don't in some way want to be attached to the cults of our day. And although that that may be a noble assertion, it's a dangerous one. Because what we must understand is because good works and obedience play a large part in God's economy of salvation, to remove good works lessens the gospel. It lessens the beauty of the work of the gospel that he not only made you a new creation, but he purposed you for good works that he planned beforehand that you would walk in them. But to remove that leaves us with the shell of a gospel. It looks good, but no substance. And if you want the substance of a transformed life, you cannot remove the place of obedience from the Christian life. You cannot remove obedience as a product of saving faith. D.A. Carson comments this in his commentary in Matthew. He says, It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. We cannot remove obedience from the fruit of the gospel. We cannot say that obedience is a good thing but not a necessary thing because obedience is a necessary part of saving faith. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. I love 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12 because it uh, recapitulates the promise of the new covenant from Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 and gives it to us in New Testament terms through the person and work of Christ. As we think about the new covenant, when it says that Christ is going to be the one who gives you a new heart, he's going to be the one that gives you uh, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to produce in you the good works that he wants you to do. That's what we read in the New Covenant prophecy in Ezekiel. But here we read it in its New Testament context, starting in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So who is making you worthy? God. God is making you worthy of his calling. God may fulfill every resolve for good And God may fulfill every work of faith by His power. Did you read that in verse 11? Verse 11 says it's God who is accomplishing these things in your life. And so we say, who's accomplishing obedience in my life? God. And so it necessitates obedience because the new covenant says that I will be thrusted into a life of obedience by the power of the Spirit, wrought in me by the Father, and carried out on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so therefore, there is no way that I could also be saved but not produce the fruit of the Spirit, that I would not produce the works of my Father who is in heaven because He will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. So that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Did you see that? You have a part to play in God's economy? That we would give God the weight, doxa, the glory. That we would give him the amount of attention and weight that is due his name. And part of that weight and part of that awe that is going to come to the glory of Christ comes through the obedience of the saints. And that he may be glorified in you, and you may be glorified in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just stop 
It didn't just start with us. I mean, even people always ask me in the Old Testament, how do people get saved in the Old Testament? Jesus wasn't there, <laughs> you know, and they, they think they stump you, right? It's like the same way people get saved in the New Testament, by faith. What do you read? What do you read about Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. righteousness. He was righteous by, through what? Faith in God. But that righteousness that was characterized by his trust in the Father ultimately led to what we read in Hebrews 11.8 when it says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed. Did you hear that? You couldn't, you couldn't even get those two words any closer in a text than you do right there. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Like There's, there's righteousness accounted as faith because he didn't even know anything. He didn't know where he was going. God said, go. And he's like, where am I going? He said, you'll figure it out when I show you. And he says, yes, sir, I'm going. I'm on my way. By faith, he obeyed. He trusted the Lord. And our trust in Christ is consequently going to produce obedience in our life. There's no way out of it. There's no way to get around the necessity of obedience and saving faith. And that's why, even as you look at the preaching point, recognizing the nature of spirit-empowered obedience, not religious activity, because we're going to see that in just a moment. Religious activity ain't doing it either. You can do a lot of things religiously that are not God's will. You can do a lot of great things that aren't God's will. But we are entrusting the spirit-empowered obedience of God to be active in our life because of the saving faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And so because of what we just said, we should be concerned about the kinds of confessions people make. The kinds of confession people make are different or necessary for us to look at, lest deception be rooted in our churches. Think about this. I mean, if we are going to give unequivocal assurance to everyone's salvation just because they say that they're saved, I mean, think about this. You want to, be, you want to, you want to come be a part of our church? Okay, come on. Uh, you want to be a, a life group leader? You want to be a deacon at our church? Are you saved? Yes. Okay, come on. Well, this man really, you know, working hard at the church. And I say, hey, uh, you know, you look, okay, you, you say you're saved, all those things. Do you want to be a pastor? Okay, come on up. I mean, do you want unregenerate pastors to fill your pulpit? Do you want there to be deacons and leaders in your church who are not saved leading in your church? Then there is going to be a, there's a necessary way biblically that you have to say, just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because you tell me something is true about you doesn't necessitate its authenticity according to God's word. Because you don't want a pastor who is unsaved, and your pastor doesn't want a congregation that is unsaved. We both feel that deeply, that we want to make sure that those who are in fellowship with us are regenerate. And I don't want to put my own standards on the table to decide who is regenerate and who's not. I just want to open up God's word and say, can we just look at God's word and submit to what it says? Because when I look at verses 22 and 23, it gives me that grave concern, not only for our congregation, but for the individuals who are deceived. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Okay, you remember earlier I asked you to place a category in your mind that said there will be people, I don't know how many, I just know categorically, verse 21 tells me that there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, who won't be saved. Remember we made that category? Okay, now within that same category, you can place not a particular number, but a general idea of how many this is going to be. 
in verse 22. On that day, many, many. So earlier we were wondering, is it going to be a little? Is it going to be kind of a moderate amount? Or is it going to be a lot? And all we're going to do is look right there at the words of Jesus, and he says, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot of people who are going to come and they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord. And they're going to come with some, with some stuff. Watch this. They're going to come bearing some kind of fictitious proof. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So again, in the presence of the Lord of the universe, false converts are going to stand before the Father, which again is quite a telling reality that someone would stand before the Son and point at their own selves, their own works, for admittance into the kingdom of heaven. You want to talk about a false convert? Someone who only talks about me, 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 and me. Look what I did. Look what I'm going to do. Look, what I, look who I am. There's some evidence of a false convert. And you see these same false converts who stand before the Lord and say, I did this, I did this, I did this, but don't worry, I tagged your name on the end of it, Lord, so you'd get some credit. But it was me. That's why you let me in, because I did all of these very religious and very powerful things. And Jesus will look them straight into the eye and declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, for this person, we talk about second person imperatives a lot, right? That idea that Jesus is saying, you, second person, you do this. The only second person imperative we have in this entire text is the word depart. Jesus has one thing for the person who wants to approach him and say that his or her work and religious activity will grant them entrance into the kingdom. He says, get out, you workers of lawlessness. I love how he classifies what that work is. And this is important for you, to, you and I to know in our culture that these works that Jesus are talking about, things that you would say, that's a good thing. Casting out demons, prophesying, I assume in the name of Jesus, that means there was some authenticity to that. By authenticity, I mean there was some truthfulness in the things that they prophesied about. And they were doing many mighty works in your name. Jesus classifies them as lawless. They're lawless. They were against the will of God. They weren't the will of God. They were against the will of God. Although there may have been some true things that were said and some wonderful things that were done which is really concerning in our culture because I hear and you hear oftentimes of otherwise apostate churches who say, watch this miracle. Listen to this message. Watch the works that are done here. And the world says, well, how can that be false if they're doing all of these really, really great things? You know, if that church or if that pastor is doing all these wonderful things, I mean, he casting out demons on stage. He's prophesying about things we could have never known. And he's doing so many mighty works. So you can't tell me that that church and that pastor are false. You're just a hypocrite. You're a legalist. And I'm saying, well, Jesus said that. Now, of course, we want to make sure we don't apply that to the wrong people. And then we're not going to be vigilantes like we talked about last week. But it's like, didn't Jesus say that? People are going to do all those wonderful things, and yet he's going to say those are lawless people who were false converts. And so we got to be careful that we don't just equate big, giant, powerful things and activities and events as proof of God's imprimata, his imprint, his stamp of approval. 
God's stamp of approval isn't in big, giant, wonderful activities. We see that all throughout Scripture. We see it, even though I was talking to a young man at the, at the, in between the services, when Moses was going through the Pharaoh and he was doing these miraculous works, the magicians that Pharaoh summoned did almost all of the same things. And if we're going to say, they're both, then they're both equally godly magicians and prophets. Now we're going to say, no, there's, there's false works and there's genuine works that are accompanied by the accurate teaching of God's word, the fruits of the Spirit, the obedience of the saints. We see it in the New Testament. Jot down Acts 19. In Acts 19, we see Jesus rejecting, well, throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus rejecting a lot of fervent religious activity as someone's proof of salvation. Right? Just because they're doing amazing things doesn't mean they're obeying God's will. And we see this in Acts 19, verses 13 through 20. There, in verse 13, it says, There were some of these itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over the, those who had evil spirits. And so, again, itinerant Jewish exorcists who uh, undoubtedly did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ because of what we'll say here in a moment. But they were going around and they were casting out demons in people. And this is what they would say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims to, to get out. So even that just shows you that there is barely a tacit connection with Jesus, the Lord of the universe, that they don't even say, I cast you out in the name of Jesus. It's I cast you out in the, in the Jesus whom Paul talks about. I mean, there's just, they have no understanding of who Jesus is. They just recognize there comes some influence and power if I just say the name Jesus. I can go to a church today and I can get on the pulpit and I can say, Jesus, and people will just start clapping. And it's like, well, I'd like to wait to hear what he has to say about Jesus first before I'm going to clap about whether or not that whatever he said about Jesus is accurate or false. And here we have people who are, who, are, who are saying that they somehow are connected with Jesus, but just prove through the, even the way that they speak and the way that they live that they know nothing about Jesus. And they adjured these demons by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And in one instance, there were these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, and they were doing the same thing. So we understand it wasn't just the seven sons of Sceva. There were a lot of other people doing this. But then we kind of zoom in on the scene at hand, and now we find ourselves talking to seven of them, or at least listening to what seven of them were doing. And they were going and doing this, but there was this one evil spirit in verse 15 who answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Right. That's oh, it's terrible, right? That's awesome. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped, leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. In the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So even that is evidence of this idea that people were, here, like people who were practicing the magic arts in 19, they were sorcerers, they were, they were magicians. There were people that you and I would, would classify in our day with the people of the occult. They were looking for secret knowledge. They were looking to, to delve into figuring out how to take the power from supernatural beings and apply it to me so that I can use it at my own discretion. And so these people who were, who were clumped with the ones that we see there in verse 19, they came together, well, at least the ones who were, who, who were saved. Who were, verse 19, 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them all in the sight of all. You see this, that there are people that are associating with the occult and sorcerers and magicians who are trying to, in some way, use the name of Jesus for their own personal advancement and power and authority, and yet they do these awesome things. Because the point of this I want to draw you to is this wouldn't be in the text if it was all, if it didn't have any kind of profitability, right? This wouldn't be in the text if there were these people who were saying these things and there were no demons casted out. They would not be in the text. Why? Because it actually gives you an example of one time it didn't work. The fact of the matter is it tells you there at the beginning that there were these people who undertook invoking the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so undoubtedly, apparently, there was some moderate success in casting out demons in the name of Jesus by people who did not know Jesus at all. And so even that should be an example of saying, we can't just say because someone says Jesus that it is actually under the, the banner of an effectual salvation of that person's life just because they say something to be true. And, and here's really the dagger of this text. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, we should understand the word know in the Bible. It denotes more than just familiarity, right? When, when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, I know them. In our culture, it kinda, we kind of wash this word down because it doesn't mean what it meant in the Bible. That could mean we're familiar with someone. But you don't read that into the biblical text. In Scripture, uh, the word know always equates an intimate relationship. You know this because uh, when we look in the Old Testament, it'll often say, uh, you know, so-and-so, maybe like King David or Solomon or some, went and knew his wife. And you're going to say, they weren't just shaking hands, right? I mean, like, you know that that's not what no means. Like, he went and knew her in a sexual relationship. So that idea, there's an intimate relationship going on when I hear the word no. We also see this in the Old Testament when it relates to God and his people Israel, that God would say, and I would know them, and they would be my children, and I will be their father. So that him saying, I know them, he's saying that I am a family. We are a family. I am related to them. I don't just kind of know them from afar. This is important to understand that. Because when we say, I never knew you, we don't have to think Jesus of some person who just doesn't recognize your name when you get to heaven. I mean, if you need to recognize Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. And so because of that, we're not going to stand before Jesus one day. Uh, and he's going to look at you and he's going to be like, he's going to like, last name. Okay. Social security, last four digits. All right. He's going to look, I need some help. I don't, you know, I need, can you give me some records on this person? He's not going to do that. Because he's not saying, I don't know you, like I'm not familiar with who you are. What he's saying is, you're not related to me. You're not mine. That's what he means when he says that I never knew you. He's like, you're not a part of my family. And so when we see that, then we're going to say, well, if, what more can I do than cast out demons and prophesy and do many mighty works? If that doesn't get me in, then what does? Certainly not those things, but being a child of God through faith in Christ, saves me. And because that's the only thing that saves me, I've got to do this in point number three. I need to admit that works outside of saving faith are inadequate. Admit that works outside of saving faith are inadequate. They're never going to save you. They're ineffectual. 
They do not pass the test of righteousness in the sight of the Father. One last text I'd like to point your attention to, and it's a text that many people who want to deny the idea of obedience would always go to a text like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but I'd like to add verse 10 on there because I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 actually give you the full picture of how the gospel harmonizes faith and works. And if you look there in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you're going to see the beautiful relationship between the grace of God and obedience to God. Look, look at there in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, right? We see that. That's the, that's the cry of the Reformation. We trust that. We believe that to be true as we look at Scripture. And he says, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So I understand that the faith that saves cannot be connected to prior to my amount of work that I did so that no one may boast. No one's going to be able to say, I did more than you did because that's why I got into heaven. And verse 10 then says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no salvation by faith alone in Christ alone that does not also purpose you for good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. It's not like God said, oh no, you're getting saved? I guess I better go figure out all the things I want you to do now while you're on the earth and in eternity. No, he said, these were beforehand. Like I knew you before you were saved. I chose you to be my child. And in that choosing you, I have also brought before you from the day of your salvation unto eternity all the things that I wanted you to walk in obedience toward for my glory. All of it. And we see it all wrapped up in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, we're not going to be perfect. But what it means is I'm going to strive for holiness. I'm going, to, I'm going to commit to faithful ministry in my home, in my church, at work. And I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall straight on my faith, faith, face because of my own sin. And I'm going to say, Lord, forgive me. May your grace cover me, forgive me, empower me to live for you. Amen. And I'm going to say, that's what it means. That's what it looks like to have a genuine conversion. That I would not trust in a profession. That I would not trust in my works. But I want my profession of my faith and my works to tell of the goodness and the glory of God. Let's pray. Will you stand with me as we do? God, I pray that this sermon was just the ticket. I pray that it was exactly what our church needed today in our time. I pray, God, that we would stay square with your scripture, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't dive to the left or to the right, but that we would look at your scripture and divide it well, that your spirit would illuminate the text to our eyes. As I pray that we did even this morning to take your word, understand it, and then that you would apply it to our lives and that your spirit would empower us to live it out and that we would entrust ourselves to you who loves us. That God, we would recognize that it is not our faith, that it is not our work, that it is, God, you 
And as you produce faith in us, you would produce obedience in us. And that we would admit that any work that we would do outside of saving faith, that it's, it's inadequate. But that we'd also recognize there is a part of obedience that is in your economy of salvation. And I would pray that we'd rac- recognize that all saving faith would produce a kind of obedience in our lives that is indicative of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that through that, through those things, that we'd have a biblical view of professions of faith. That we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust in you who have given us your word to live out in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.